The following message is by Dr. Cliff McManus, pastor-teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship, located in Mountain View, California. Let's go ahead and, like I said, open up to Revelation chapter 3. We have undertaken the almost impossible task, some would say, to embark on the book of Revelation and study it in an expository manner, paragraph by paragraph, but we've chosen to do that, see how God might bless us, and He has. So we've been in the book of Revelation for a little over a month, and we are now uh, looking at the seven churches of Asia Minor that John the Apostle, who wrote this book of Revelation in about 95 A.D., he lived in that area, served as a pastor and elder in that area in Asia Minor, which is modern-day Turkey. Probably was the pastor at one of those churches, Very, quite possibly the church at Ephesus, which we already looked at. And then uh, John addresses seven churches in that area, one by one. And actually, it's Jesus Christ himself addressing these seven churches of Asia Minor through an angel, through John the Apostle, uh, giving them words that Jesus wants them to hear, to be encouraged, to be rebuked, and also to be an example to other local churches in John's day and even throughout the history of the church. So we are now on our fifth church. Uh, We looked at Ephesus, uh, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, and now Sardis. And then we're going to look at two more after that uh, coming up in a couple of weeks. And just so you know, these churches historically were located in Asia Minor, and the way that Jesus lists them and the way that John writes to them, there's a logical manner in which he does it. He starts with Ephesus, which was right on the coast where ships came in frequently. And then if you went from Ephesus north about 40 miles, you would run into the city of Smyrna. And if you kept going north, then you'd run into the city of Pergamum. And then you go down south, and then you run into Thyatira going south and to the east. And then you keep going a little south and a little east. You run into the next city, which is Sardis. And then you keep going down south. You run into Philadelphia and keep going south. You run into Philadelphia. And so historically, actually, that route that they take from Ephesus to Laodicea was actually a well-run, well-used postal route. So that's kind of the logical layout of why the order is that is given from Ephesus to Laodicea. Now we are on church number five, and let's go ahead and look at it. And this is the church of Sardis, it was called. Historical city, actually in a region called Lydia. An important city there. Uh, Just by way of reminder again, in addition, as we look at these churches that existed 2,000 years ago, There might be a tendency to think, oh, they're archaic, they're ancient, they don't have any relative meaning to us, and actually they do. So we can't look at these ancient churches 2,000 years ago with all their personality and problems and thinking it is not pertinent to us, it is. So we can't look at them as ancient, dusty relics. Actually, we should look at these as bright, reflective mirrors, and as we look at them, we see ourselves, because people don't change. Sinners don't change, people don't change, and therefore, for the most part, churches don't change in terms of their dynamics, how they operate, and what God has to say to them. So the very direct words that Jesus says to Sardis needs to be said to us, GBF and every church around the world, and also to us as individual Christians. So these messages are very practical to the Christian life, individually and also corporately. So keep that in mind as we go through it. As As we look at the church at Sardis, There are four points I want to make today that we can come away with and apply to our own lives. But before I get to those four points, follow along with me as I read 
uh, Jesus' words to the church at Sardis, verses 1 through 6. And Jesus said, And to the messenger of the church in Sardis, write, He who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars says this, I know your deeds, that you have a name, that you are alive, but you are dead. Wake up and strengthen the things that remain which were about to die. For I have not found your deeds completed in the sight of my God. Remember, therefore, what you have received and heard, and keep it and repent. If, therefore, you will not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I will come upon you. But you have a few people in Sardis who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. He who overcomes shall thus be clothed in white garments, and I will not erase his name from the book of life, and I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So let's go ahead and look at the church at Sardis. Uh, point number one there is just the congregation. This church, its city, its surroundings, and the church historically. Uh, the congregation is the church in Sardis. Uh, John, using the same format as he addresses all these churches, or really Jesus as he's talking. And so what we need to know about the church of Sardis, as I already said, it was uh, going down south from the church previous, which was Thyatira, about 30 to 40 miles, probably about uh, 50 miles away from Ephesus, which was on the coast there, close to the Aegean Sea. Last week I said the Mediterranean Sea. Oops, that was a boo-boo. It's actually the Aegean Sea. Uh, Sardis wasn't the most significant of the seven cities there, but it was a significant city, especially in the region of a the, uh, place called Lydia there. had a unique geography in the way it was built and fortified and uh, self-protected just by virtue of its geography. The New Testament says nothing about when the church of Sardis was started. Unlike Ephesus, we know when that was started. Uh, more than likely, Acts 19.10 says that when the Apostle Paul was in Ephesus for two solid years, he preached so faithfully and so deliberately that everywhere in Asia they heard the word of the Lord, Acts 19.10 said. So Paul just went on this preaching tour throughout that entire region. And no doubt, as a result of his preaching, some were converted and ended up planting churches in these various cities that we really don't know anything about until we get to Revelation, Sardis being one of those. So it is very likely that Sardis began as a church uh, during the ministry of the Apostle Paul, somewhere in the 50s or 60s, which would mean that at this point when John is writing in 95 A.D. that the church at Sardis is about 40 years old. It's got a lot of years under its belt. It's got some maturity. It's been around, and that's going to be significant. The fact that it has been around, it is established, it's got a history in light of what Jesus has to say to this church. Uh, so that is Sardis. Sardis is unique in that along with Laodicea, it's probably in the worst condition spiritually of all the seven churches. I'd say Sardis and Laodicea. So Jesus has some strong words for this church. But be reminded, it is a church. It is a real church and there are believers in this church. So it's not totally apostate. Uh, not yet. So that's the church in Sardis. Uh, regarding the church in Sardis, Jesus always addresses himself in his attributes as he addresses each church, describing himself as the Lord using unique figures of speech to emphasize 
his point of what he wants to tell that individual church, which is a reminder that Jesus addresses every church specifically and individually as a unique entity. There are no two churches on earth that are like it. They're not. That's why you can't replicate what some other ministry is doing if God is blessing it. Oh, let's can their, what they're doing and we'll do it here. We'll just buy the book, buy the program, whatever. You can't do that. Because a church is a living entity, the body of Christ, that only the Spirit of God can determine how it's going to grow and thrive. can't be replicated. Every church, every Christian is unique. And as a result, Jesus is going to address every church uniquely by His features. And the features He wants them to keep foremost in their minds as He talks to them. He says, uh, the middle of verse 1, Okay, church of Sardis, I am the one that's talking. Who is that? It is the Lord Jesus Christ. And He describes Himself saying, the one who has the seven spirits of God, the one who owns and possesses the seven spirits of God, literally the one who holds the seven spirits of God in his hand. And this is talking about Jesus. Jesus owns and holds the seven spirits of God in his hand. What are the seven spirits of God? We already saw this. Revelation chapter 1, verse 4. As John introduces his book, he says, John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace, from the Trinity... And he describes the Trinity as as follows. From Him who is and who was and who is to come. That's the Eternal One. That is the Father. And also from the the seven spirits who are before His throne. That is the Holy Spirit. And it's a unique description of the Holy Spirit used nowhere else in Scripture like this, save in the book of Revelation. And then verse 5, and from Jesus Christ. So that's the Trinity. The Eternal Father, the Holy Spirit who's described as the seven spirits of God. Seven being the number of completion, and fullness, and that's how he's describing the Spirit of God here. There's another reference in Revelation, in Revelation chapter 5, that describes the seven spirits of God, which is the Holy Spirit. Uh, uh, Revelation 5, 6 says this, As John had a heavenly vision, and he was allowed to see up in heaven what it looked like, and he saw between the throne of God in heaven with the four living creatures who were angels and the elders who were also angelic beings, He saw a lamb standing as if slain. That is the Lord Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, still with the marks of where He was crucified. And that's what John sees as he's looking into heaven before the throne of God Almighty. He sees the Lamb of God who is Jesus. And Jesus is described as the one having seven horns, which means He is all-powerful. And Jesus is also described as having seven eyes, which means He is omniscient. He knows everything. He sees everything. That's what that means. But here's a unique addition at the end of verse 6. Jesus has seven horns and seven eyes, and the eyes are the seven spirits of God. Wow. Revelation 1.4 said that the seven spirits of God are the Holy Spirit. Well, they are. And here it says, Jesus has seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God. In other words, the Holy Spirit is the eyes of the Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, the Holy Spirit, Jesus, and God the Father are absolutely inseparable in terms of their being. That is the Trinity. The miracle of the Trinity, the mystery of the Trinity, it boggles the imagination. So going back to Revelation 3, Jesus talks about his unique relationship with the Spirit of God. And one of the things that a church should remember first and foremost about the Spirit of God, what is it that the Spirit of God does? The Spirit of God gives life. That's what he does first and foremost. He imparts spiritual life individually and corporately. Life comes only from the Spirit of God if you are a church or a Christian. That is what this church needed to hear. They were a dead and dying church. They needed to be revitalized by the life of the Holy Spirit. Hence, Jesus says, the one with the Spirit's, 
of God, the seven spirits of God. What else did they need to hear? Jesus describes himself also as the one who has the seven stars. We saw in Revelation 1, the seven stars were the seven messengers of the churches. Seven men of the churches. Seven literal human beings. And Jesus holds them in his right hand. Which means Jesus has authority over leaders in the church. It doesn't go, pastor, Jesus, congregation, whatever. It goes, God, the Trinity, the Lord Jesus Christ, and then everything else is under that. And everybody's under His headship. He is the head of the church. And as such, Jesus is reminding them, I am in charge of this church. I am the pastor of this church, the chief shepherd of this church. I have authority over this church. I can bless this church. I can punish this church if need be. And I can speak to it authoritatively. So that's what they needed to hear. And Jesus is directly addressing the leaders of that church. Because after 40 years, this church was in a sad state of affairs. And who's responsible? The leadership is. They led the people there, apparently. So here's a resounding rebuke that's about to come from the Lord Jesus Christ. So let's look at that rebuke, and that is the condemnation. That's verse two, uh, point number two, the condemnation. And they're going to be condemned for two things primarily, apathy and compromise. The middle of verse 1 down to verse 3. They had a lot of problems, but John summarizes what their problems were. Or actually, Jesus does as he sees with omniscience cutting through. He knows what they're doing. This was an established church. Maybe they even had a building. We don't know. Maybe it was a huge, massive, amazing building on like 25 acres with like gold on the roofs. Huge, massive cross. We don't know. Beautiful stained windows. Lush carpet. I don't know. But it's been around for 40 years, this congregation. It is established. And over the course of 40 years, they were able to establish a reputation in their immediate community. People knew about the church at Sardis down on the end of the block. Because it had a reputation, because that's what Jesus says. Uh, the middle of verse 1, he says, I know your deeds. I know your works. And these, he's talking about their current works. They were not good. He's not commending them. I know your deeds. I know your work. I know what you are currently doing, and I do not approve. I know your deeds. And then he goes on and he says, that you have a name. You know what that means? That means you have a reputation. They had a church title. They've been around. Apparently one time in the past they actually did things well and made an impact in the community. So people knew about this church. The city council probably knew about this church. You have a reputation. You have a name. You have a building. You have people. You have a budget. You have money. You got resources. You have a reputation. And you have a reputation of being alive. At least historically. You gain that uh, reputation by making an impact, making a difference doing things that were significant so much that people came to know who you are. And they, you drew their attention. But in reality, Jesus says at the end of verse 1, this is their problem, but you are dead. You're dead. And he's talking about spiritually dead. Now, not everybody in the church was spiritually dead, but they were on their way. They were on their way. There was a minority. There was a few who still knew Christ personally and weren't spiritually dead. But for the most part, the majority, what dominated was that you had a church building or whatever it was, congregation, filled with spiritually dead 
people who called themselves Christians. That's a problem. That's why he says in verse 2, wake up. Wake up! See, Jesus has a sense of urgency. Wake up! What is a church supposed to be anyway? Jesus told us, right? If you're, you are the light of the world. You're the light of the world. What are you supposed to do? You're supposed to be on a hill shining the light of Christ and truth in a dark, sinful, lost, fallen world. That's what a church does. It is a light. You're the light of the world. Don't let your light be covered. What else did Jesus say? He said, churches and Christians, you're, you're the salt of the earth. You are the salt of the earth. What does salt do? Salt preserves things. They used it back then to rub into meat, to preserve the meat because they didn't have refrigeration like we do. Or sometimes they take uh, salt and put it on a wound because it would kill germs. It was a preservative. But also it would kill disease. And that's what Christians are supposed to be. They're supposed to... Oh, and another thing is you're supposed to be sprinkled and penetrate all over the place. That's what you do with salt. And as Christians, that's what we're supposed to be. Christians are supposed to go out into the world, infiltrate the world, penetrate the lost, be out in the community, and make a difference as salt and light. A preservative of literally of society. That's what the church is supposed to be. The church, did you know the church is supposed to be the conscience of the culture? We are. If we didn't, if the culture and society and your local community did not have Christians influencing it, the entire society would hit rock bottom at an unprecedented pace in terms of its immorality and corruptness. And so Christians are supposed to infiltrate uh, society and the community with the conscience and the truth of God Himself. Who else is going to speak up and tell the culture what marriage truly is? One man, one woman, before God, for life. Right? That unborn children are living beings made in the image of God, sacred to Him. That's what the church is supposed to do. To be a conscience for truth. To expose what is wrong and to say and define what is right. Well, apparently, we're going to see Sardis that one time was that. They were the conscience of society and apparently they weren't anymore. Forty years later when Jesus addresses them. In light of that, here are the three main things that were wrong with the church at Sardis. Huge implications because they're so practical. First First thing regarding them being condemned for their apathy and compromise, the first one is that they were spiritually dead and dying. Dead is a very specific word, spiritually speaking, in the New Testament. It is used almost consistently, spiritually speaking. It just means without spiritual life. Without spiritual life. And consistently in the New Testament, you can see this in the Gospels, the Apostle Paul. How do you know if something is alive? Well, spiritually speaking, well, it's the same way if you have a plant in the yard that you planted or a plant in your house. How do you know if that plant is alive? You look for fruit whether it's leaves that are growing, still green, or literally fruit growing on the plant. If you're missing fruit and you're missing leaves, uh, you probably have a dead plant on your hands. And it's the same thing, spiritually speaking. We don't know the hearts of people, but Jesus said people are going to produce fruits, either bad fruits because they're not saved and regenerate, or they're going to produce the fruit of God through the Holy Spirit if they are regenerate. Every Christian will produce fruit, guaranteed from God. Ephesians 2.10. Galatians chapter 5. And so the church at Sardis, even though it was this massive shell of a church that has existed for four decades, had a name, a reputation, on the outside, but on the inside it was spiritually dead. It was no longer producing spiritual fruit. 
It was lifeless. Well, what, what do you mean by fruit specifically? Well, New Testament teaches two kinds of fruit. Attitude fruit and action fruit, right? Galatians 5 talks about those attitude fruits. And the fruit or the byproduct of the Holy Spirit living in you is love, joy, peace, patience, goodness, kindness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. Those are attitudes, but they're fruits that flow from the Holy Spirit of God. Sardis was missing these for the most part. They were not a church characterized by the fruits of the Holy Spirit. It was a dead church, attitudinally, spiritually speaking. I've been in churches like that. Maybe, Probably most of you have as well. I think about when I was in seminary. This is about 20 years ago. We lived in Southern California. And we went to Grace Community Church in the morning. But on one Sunday evening, we decided we're going to go visit this little church that's just a block away on the end of our street, literally. Less than a block away. And it was something, something Christian church. And we've been driving by it for like a year and a half. So on a Sunday evening, we were late to go to Grace Community. So, hey, let's go here. Uh, and we went and checked it out because I was always very interested. What is this church all about? And so literally my wife and I, we went in there. And the building was about this size, maybe a little smaller. We came in, tried to find a bulletin, uh, saw living, walking beings. They apparently were living because they were walking around and talking. Came by. Uh, nobody came over here. Okay, eye contact. No, nobody came over here. So we just decided to walk in. Nobody greeted us, in other words. Then we went kind of to the back of the church and sat on the back pew, waiting for church to start at 6 p.m. And then eventually it did start. And then somebody got up and said something, and the building was half-filled, and it was only it could probably only accommodate 100 people anyway. And then uh, they did some things, and it was an older generation. And for the next 40 minutes, all they did was they did a slideshow for 40 minutes. And all the pictures of, were of them from 20 and 30 years ago. And they're going on and on. Oh, remember this, Phyllis? Oh, and that potluck 40 years ago? Oh, yeah. When the kids were... Going, I am not kidding. And we're sitting here watching this slideshow uh, for about 40 minutes. And then the slideshow was over and that was it. And they dismissed everybody. And not one person came up and greeted us and said hi. That is a dead church. Sardis was on the brink. There are dead churches riddled all over the United States, all over the world, unfortunately. Without fruit. So there's attitude fruit produced by the Holy Spirit, but there's also action fruit. And one of the dominant terms used, or, or one of the main ways that fruit is used, spiritually speaking, in terms of actions produced by Christians and the church in the New Testament, refers to lost people being saved. That's one of the dominant themes. That's how Jesus referred to in John 4 lost souls. There's the harvest. There they are. So what is fruit? Fruit is producing converts. Having a fresh, ongoing stream of people who don't know God coming, hearing the gospel, being saved, being converted, joining the church. New, fresh blood, vibrancy in the church so often comes from new believers, doesn't it? So fruit probably dominantly referred to the fact that these people were not evangelizing, they weren't sharing the gospel. They, You know, frankly, they probably didn't care about the community and the world and lost people anymore. What they did over time, they became inward focused. Not about them. It is about us. They were ingrown. And they lost a heart for the lost and weren't sharing the gospel anymore. That is, that is sad. Because that's one of, that's the main thing that Jesus wants to do through Christians in this life is to use us as a channel of truth to the lost world. A channel. 
Sardis was no longer a channel or a cul-de-sac of truth to the lost world. They weren't a channel. They had become a stagnant, muddy pond. It's all about us. So they were spiritually dead. Another thing that was wrong with them, uh, verse 2, he said, wake up. Wake up! It's a command. Sense of urgency, like I said. So the second thing is, is they were asleep. Dead spiritually. Spiritually also asleep. They need to be woken out of their sleep. They were stagnant, apathetic, listless. They were in a fog and malaise, spiritually speaking. Lethargic with respect to spiritual things and spiritual priorities. Asleep at the wheel, if you were, if you will. What does it mean to be spiritually asleep? When Jesus has to rebuke you and say, wake up. Well, they lost their zeal. That's Romans 12, where Paul gives all these commands, like 15 of them in a row. One of them is, be zealous. Have zeal. You know what that Greek word means? Have fire for God. Fire in your bosom. Zeal. Fire for God. I am fired up. I am fired up for Christ. Zeal. Passion. Desire. Insatiable. For truth. The Word of God. Christ. The Gospel. Evangelism. Seeing souls be saved. They lost it. They were asleep. They lost their passion for the spiritual priorities. For them, Christianity had become, for the most part, uh, one big yawn. Ho-hum. We don't know, but it could be because they've been around for uh, four decades. Maybe a lot of these people responsible for the spiritual compromise of lethargy and being spiritually asleep is because they were second-generation Christians, maybe. They didn't have the fire and zeal of their parents in the first generation that got saved out of a pagan lifestyle. They got saved in the midst of a persecuting society with their lives on the line. That's possible. It happens. It happens today. They were asleep. Also being a part of a sleep was a spiritual malaise, but in addition to that, they had become comfortable and complacent. That happens, doesn't it? Comfortable and complacent. That can happen so easy as a church. You get to know everybody. You start to fit in. You're comfortable with who your friends are. You're comfortable with the routine. You're comfortable with everything about it. And you just get comfortable and cozy. And as humans, we, by nature, we resist change. We resist challenge. We want it comfortable. We want the path of least resistance is what we want. So they were comfortable and cozy. So much so that their church, which God intended to be a lighthouse, it had become a, a club, private club, members only. Pretty sad. Happens to churches all the time. So they were comfortable, complacent. Probably one last thing regarding how they fell asleep was that they began to compromise with the world around them. When they started as a new church, they were probably totally distinct. It was like black and white, day and night, light and darkness, a clear distinction as a new church. And then over time, the, more, the longer they were in the society, the more they accommodated the ways of society in the sinful world around them so that they weren't transforming the community. The community was transforming that church. And that's what happened. So apparently they were almost unrecognizable from the world. Oh, I've known you for two years. Really? You're a Christian? I never knew that. You hide it so well. Apparently that's what was going on at Sardis because we know they were compromising with specific kinds of sin because he refers to it a little later when he talks about those who were faithful unlike the rest of them who did not soil their garments. Soiled garments refers to sinful behavior. We don't know what the sin was, but they were involved in it. They were just dabbling in the things of the world as they got comfortable and accommodating the world and appeasing the world. 
Okay, we'll, we'll tone it down at church among the saints with our worship so you'll feel comfortable and you won't be offended by the cross of Jesus Christ when you come to church. I won't preach from the Bible because it says harsh things and offensive things that unbelievers don't understand and they can't handle and they're offended by. I'll tone it down. As a matter of fact, I'll just close it. Very possible. We see it happen all the time around us. We've seen it happen all throughout history. So they were compromising with the world. And then finally, regarding their condemnation, um, they became institutionalized. What is that? Well, I'm not going to define it as much as just give you examples of what happens when something becomes institutionalized. Here's a quote from somebody that's very helpful about organizations. Wherever you have people, they become institutionalized. And here's the process chronologically and historically of how it happens, of how a church specifically becomes institutionalized or a ministry. The message to Sardis is a warning to all great churches. Boy, and there have been some great churches throughout history. There are some great churches today. But this... This letter is a warning to these great churches that are living on past glory, living on their laurels. Spiritual ministries and churches, seminaries, Christian colleges, often go through four stages. Somebody observed, and this is for the most part true. You can see it. It starts with a man, which becomes a movement, and then it becomes a machine, and then it ends up as a monument. Many times, significant ministries start around the personality of one human being. You know what? That is dangerous. Because no human being that is sinful and walks with feet of clay is the head of the church. Only the Lord Jesus Christ is. He is the head of the church. I've said it many times. This is not, GBF is not Cliff's church. But when I hear that, uh, I have an aversion to that. I know what they mean. I understand the vernacular. And if I don't know the person, I won't say anything. I understand what they mean. But if it's a member of GBF, I will remind them, I ain't my church. This is Jesus' church. So you have a man. And you can just see this even in the last 50 years in Christianity, right? Whether it's, and some of these are really good men who love God. They didn't intend them as a man of God to become a monument for Christianity. What's a monument? It's a memory is what it is. And literally, it's a gravestone. It is a tombstone. Representing there's no life going on anymore. It's just a distant memory. It's a shadow of what it was. But whether it's promise keepers, starting with Bill McCartney, that God used in an amazing way, sharing the gospel, praying with men, people coming to know Christ, that was exciting in the early days. So it went from man and then it became a movement, didn't it? All over the world, promise keepers, the movement. And then when they did that for a few years, it actually became an institutionalized machine. All their employees and their books and their curriculum and everything else. And then, you know what? It died. And it didn't even take two, two decades to die. And for the most part, all we have today with respect to promise keepers is a monument. And promise keepers isn't the only one susceptible to that. Any Christian, any church is. So it's a good reminder. But I, I do want to read this uh, quote regarding becoming institutionalized because this is so common among churches. Uh, and these are just kind of Earmarks of what it means that your church is warning signs that your church is becoming institutionalized over time or it's about to. Uh, this is from Gene Getz, pastor, great book he wrote in the 70s called Sharpening the Focus of the Church. 
And he says, like people and plants, organizations have a life cycle. Organizations. And the church is an organism, so it is like a plant. It's a life. It's a living entity. Uh, So, like people and plants, organizations and churches have a life cycle. They have a green and supple youth. They have a time of flourishing strength. And then they have a gnarled old age. Pretty graphic description. And here are some earmarks to be aware of. Red flags, yellow flags, that you or your organization or your church is becoming institutionalized in a bad way. Uh, the organization or the form of the structure becomes more important than the people that make up the organization. Another one. Individuals begin to function in the organization more like cogs in a machine rather than being led by the Spirit of God spontaneously through prayer. Number three. Individuality and creativity are lost in the structural mass that's been created. Number four, the atmosphere in the organization becomes threatening rather than open and free, stifling. People are often afraid to ask uncomfortable questions. Number five, the structural arrangements in the organization have become rigid and inflexible. What is the second rule of church planting? Flexibility. Thank you. Boy, I hope we don't forget that. Number six, people are serving the organization more than the objectives for which the organization was brought into existence. Man, I've seen this in ministry. I've led programs like this. Here, we've got to do this program. How come? Because I was paid to do it. Well, why do we have it? I don't know, but I'm paid to do it. What's the spiritual significance? I don't know, but it's fun. Seriously. That's a true life testimony. I'm guilty. In other words, uh, means become ends. Number seven, communication often breaks down, particularly because of a regressive atmosphere and lots of red tape and bureaucracy. Number eight, people become prisoners of their procedures. The, quote, policy manual becomes all authoritative, and the rule book to get bigger and fresh ideas are fewer and farther between. Number nine, in order to survive in a cold structure, people develop their own special interests within the organization, creating competitive departments and divisions. That's not my area of ministry. I'm not going to talk to that pastor, even though I'm a pastor on the same staff. That's your area. That's your responsibility. That's what it's talking about. I've seen that happen, too. The corporate objective gives way to a multitude of unrelated objectives, which inevitably results in a lack of unity in the organization as a whole. The body is no longer unified. The thumb doesn't know what the head is doing. Number 10, morale degenerates. People lose their initiative. They become discouraged and often critical of the organization and of others in the organization, particularly of its leaders. Maybe some of you have been at this kind of a church in the past. And then finally, number 11, as the organization gets bigger and as time passes, the process of institutionalization often speeds up. And progresses. A hierarchy of leadership develops, increasing the problems of communication from the top uh, to the bottom and the bottom to the top. People toward the bottom or even in the middle of the organization structure feel more and more as if they really don't count. Their voice doesn't matter. The leadership doesn't care about their opinion. Boy, we see that in churches all the time. That is institutionalization. Pretty poignant and relative, isn't it? Very practical. That's the church of Sardis. Let's not be like the church of Sardis. Well, so much for the bad news regarding Sardis. There was a glimmer of hope that Jesus gave this church, this true church, and that's point number three, and that's the commendation that they received. The commendation. Jesus blesses. There weren't a whole lot of people to bless in this church, but there were some faithful few. So the commendation is for the faithful few, and that's verse 4. Jesus says, in spite of these problems that are horrific and bringing you to the brink of spiritual death, literally, And there's great urgency, by the way, at the end of verse 3, Jesus reminding them, if therefore you will not wake up, I will come to you like a thief. I'm going to come unexpectedly as a judge, and you will not know at what hour I will come upon you. 
and judge you if you do not repent. And they didn't repent. He called them to repentance in the middle of verse 3. And we know historically they didn't repent because this church doesn't exist anymore in history. There is no church. In, uh, like There is a church existing in some of these cities still, but not here. And then he brings us up to uh, verse 4, and that's the next point, number 3, the commendation. So after this strong rebuke, he does commend somebody, and he says, but you have a few people in Sardis who have not soiled their garments. You have some who haven't compromised. You have some who haven't uh, accommodated the world. They've been faithful. They've remained true. They need to be commended. They've hung in there. There are churches like this where they have just dear, precious saints, usually behind the scenes, serving for 32 years in kindergarten, Sunday school, because nobody else wants to do it. And they do it with a heart of love to the Lord. And they're not troublemakers. And they're not vocal. And they're not pushy. They don't take initiative. And they're not bureaucratic. They just want to serve God in the church. And sometimes they see the leadership change like a revolving door with all their problems up top. And then these faithful few in the trenches serving Christ, undistracted, eye on the cross. That's what was going on in Sardis. Jesus commends these faithful few. They don't broker any power, by the way, usually, right? In the institution. And maybe every once in a while they'll get enough courage to go and actually talk to somebody who has the power and usually what? They aren't listened to. Their opinion doesn't matter. Just go back to your kindergarten class you've been for 32 years and be quiet. But they're faithful. They are faithful. Also, notice, they didn't leave the church. They're to be commended for that. They're hanging in there. You have a few faithful people in Sardis who haven't soiled their garments, and they, and here's their reward. They're not going to be rewarded in this life, in that compromised culture of a church, but they will be rewarded gloriously and in the future. And Jesus says this, these, these faithful saints, they are so dear, they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. Can you imagine Jesus Christ, the Lord of the universe, who created everything out of nothing, raised Himself from the dead, reigns on high over the entire universe, says He's going to allow His faithful saints through the ages to walk with Him intimately. In white. To walk with somebody means to walk side by side, to be their friend. That's who you hang out with, who you commiserate with, who you're intimate with, who you're like-minded with, who you share the deep things of life with. This is amazing, blessed intimacy that Jesus promises faithful believers. You will walk with Me. You will go with Me. The Lord Jesus Christ. Don't walk with the crowd. Don't walk and don't go with the flow. Resist the tide. Go against the flow. Go against the grain because you have Jesus Christ walking with you which is more powerful than anything and anybody. Not only that, they're going to walk with the Lord Jesus Christ which speaks of personal intimacy with Jesus Himself risen from the dead. But they're going to do it in white. White all throughout Revelation refers to cleanness, purity, sinlessness. You've been forgiven. You're no longer sinful inherently in and of yourself. Totally clean. Perfect. Resurrection. Glory is what it's talking about. So that's the commendation for the faithful few. Which brings us to the last point, and that's the invitation which He gives in every one of these letters. Always Jesus, remember? Ending with hope. Ending with good news. Ending with an invitation. Ending reminding us that Jesus came into this world to seek those who are lost, right? He's a Savior. That's His heart. Hence the invitation. I'm not going to end on the bad news, condemnation and judgment. What is the invitation? Well, basically, I summed it up with three things. They were going to get 
those who are faithful, those who hear, those who know Christ, who overcome, receive priestly purity, eternal security, and personal identity. That's verses 5 and 6. So he says this. Usually he starts off by saying, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. But he reverses the order for whatever reason. And here's the promise. Verse 5, to the overcomer. An overcomer is a Christian. A true Christian. To the overcomer, this is what you're going to get. Three blessings and they are all future. They are all in the afterlife. They are all in heaven. What are they? The first one, the one who overcomes shall thus be clothed in white garments. Revelation 19 says that the white garments is the righteousness of the saints. That means total forgiveness of sin and a perfect resurrection body. That's what that means. So hopefully as you came in today, you got a piece of a little white garment. That's not from heaven. That's from earth. So it's not going to last. But just a tangible reminder of a promise to the Christian that Jesus gave. Someday you're going to walk with clean garments. If you're a Christian and you are a believer and you are sensitive to sin many times, you, you feel dirty because you have sin living in you. That's how Paul felt in Romans 7. I feel dirty and he can't escape it. Well, someday you're going to escape it because you're going to have totally new wardrobe that's perfectly clean even from the inside out. Amazing, wonderful promise. This is priestly purity. By the way, a robe frequently, and probably the imagery is taken out of the Old Testament, referring to long white robes that were frequently given and the designated garb of priests of God. What is a priest? A priest has direct access to God Almighty. Direct access for other people. And that's what, if you're a Christian, you are a priest. Whether you're a girl, a boy, man or woman. If you're a Christian, you're a priest, meaning you have direct access to God anytime through prayer. It's awesome. So this is priestly purity. The second promise, if you're a believer, if you're a Christian in the future, God is going to give you a second promise, and that is He will not erase your name from the book of life. These people were a part of the Roman Empire. And being a citizen of the Roman Empire was very important because of all the rights that it bestowed on you. And if your name was not written in the book of the Roman Caesar, you were not a citizen and deprived of many rights, some of which were even life-threatening. That's kind of the context for them. The book of life, let alone it is also mentioned in the book of Exodus and the Psalms, that God has a book of life. But they understand this concept. Man, I hope my name is in the book. I hope I'm registered. I hope I'm legitimate and qualified and have everything I need. Otherwise, I won't be let in. The book of life speaks of those who God has elected before the foundation of the world to know Him for all eternity in this life and in heaven. In the book of life, if you're a Christian, your name is written in the book of life and God promised He's never going to erase it. In other words, the promise here is you're not going to lose your salvation if you're a true Christian. You can't. Because eternal life lasts forever. Once you're saved, you're always saved. So this was to encourage the saints that whoever doubted about their salvation and struggled with that issue, your salvation is secure in Christ and your name will never be blotted out of the book of life as a believer. That is an awesome promise. So priestly purity, eternal security, and then finally His last blessing is that Jesus Himself promises that when He gets in the future, into heaven, and when you die and you're about on the threshold of entering heaven, Jesus promises if you're a believer, He's going to do this. I will confess your name. Confess. Hamalageo. What does that mean? Well, that's where we get the word homiletics. It means to say the same thing. To say the same thing. To repeat the same thing. In other words, Jesus is saying, if you repeated My name boldly in this life, saying you were a follower of Christ and you talked about Me wherever you went, 
And you did not compromise. You were not ashamed of Christ. You spoke of Christ. He was your very identity. Because that's who you were as a Christian. You spoke the same thing proudly, boldly, enthusiastically about Christ wherever you went in this life. Jesus will do the same in heaven. He will confess the same thing. He's going to confess your name boldly, gladly, authoritatively to all of heaven, to the Father, to the angels. As he in- Jesus personally introduces you to heaven. Isn't that amazing? Maybe it'll be, all rise. Everybody stands up. The honorable judge, sister, so-and-so. Jesus Christ Himself announcing it. How glorious. How amazing. But He will personally do that for every one of His faithful sheep. We, we, you all know you like to hear your name announced at special times, right? Special recognition, graduation, you win an award, in Awana, whatever. We like our name spoken publicly. We like recognition in a good context. And that's exactly what Jesus is going to do here. Great esteem, great recognition, great honor. Not because of who we are in and of ourselves. We didn't earn it. We don't deserve it. It is all because what Christ has done for us. And we already know some of what He's going to say. When we get to heaven, He's going to welcome us by name and say, well done, good and faithful servant. But what I like is just this personal intimacy that Jesus has by name with every believer, announcing your name that everybody knows publicly and then probably whispering in your ear that private secret name that only you and Jesus know that we talked about in Revelation 2. For that personal intimate connection. So in other words, when you get to heaven, you're not getting lost in the crowd of the gazillions of angels up there flapping their wings, getting in the way. Or all the saints who have been saved over the eons. So it's not like Jesus... Yeah, uh, McManus, he's somewhere in that crowd over there. I haven't met him yet. I've been up here. He's probably been in heaven about 20 years, I guess. That's not going to happen. Personal intimacy with the Lord Jesus Christ Himself. What a glory. I want to close with this. And I want this to be a, a challenge to all of us as individual Christians and especially corporately as a church. Especially if you're a member of GBF. Listen to this. This is a paragraph on how to become like the church of Sardis. In other words, everything I'm reading here is something we should desperately avoid. But listen carefully. How to become like the church of Sardis. To get there, just neglect prolonged, deliberate, daily, passionate prayer. Stop reading the Bible on a daily basis. Stop intensive study of Scripture. Start missing church and other fellowship gatherings here and there. When you come to church, focus on what church will do for you. What you'll get out of it. Instead of focusing on worshiping God, confessing your sins, and encouraging others. As a matter of fact, just sit in the pews and do nothing. Get what you can to try to make your cup filleth over. Start complaining about the people in the church on the way home. Complain about them at home and behind their backs. Complain about the music and the food at the fellowship meal. Stop praying for the lost. Ignore them. Stop praying for opportunities to share the gospel. Stop evangelizing altogether. Start thinking and keep talking about how great some past spiritual experience was that you had years ago and think about it over and over and over and keep talking about it and how it overshadows anything going on right now in the present day. Dwell on the past. Do not think about how you will honor God today. Stop thinking about the imminence of Christ's coming. Stop living in the light of His return. Surround yourself more and more with unbelievers. As friends, 
and associates and partners. Think of how you can pacify, please, and accommodate them. Little by little, adopt their lifestyles, their preferences, their entertainment, their movies, their books, their literature, their music, their methods, their terminology, their conversation, their worldview, their goals, their aspirations. Stop focusing on people in ministry, but focus on programs. Focus on other externals like the lighting, the carpet, the building, what other people are wearing at church, what other people look like, what skin color they have. Furthermore, do what's easy. Avoid hardship. Avoid sacrifice. Think about what needs to be done just before... Oh, think about what needs to be done just to get by today. Take the path of least resistance. And when you do, you will land in a place called Sardis. God forbid that we would ever end there as a church at GBF. Let's go ahead and pray. Father, thank You for being a living God. Thank You for the Word of God. It's Your Word to us. It's living as well. Thank You for the Holy Spirit of God that takes this truth, penetrates our ears, our mind, our hearts, our soul, our conscience. May we be reminded and even rebuked by Sardis and the harsh things You had to say for those that were compromising and disobedience. Help us, God, by Your grace and mercy and through Your indwelling Holy Spirit to be like the faithful few who didn't soil their garments. They remained faithful to You and to the call and to the Gospel, to their focus, the goal, which is Christ. And we know we can't do it apart from You, Lord, from Your Spirit and truth and other saints around us encouraging us. We pray that GBF would be a community where that happens. We have the right focus and priority so that You might receive the glory and praise. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening. Dr. McManus is an author, seminary professor, and pastor-teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship. For more information about Dr. McManus, other messages, or resources, please visit gbfsv.org or call us at 650-630-0009.